from the Mercy One Studio. Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. We are coming to you from these United States of America through Iowa Catholic Radio. I'm over here in Des Moines, Iowa, where I'm the Director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and uh, the Director of the Zeta Institute. You can check us out at mchs.edu. Bud, what do you do out there in Pittsburgh? I'm here in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the National Institute for Newman Studies, where I'm the Director uh, for all of our academic work here. And you can find out about that work at newmanstudies.org. Well, Bud, uh, you know, I don't know if we should break news uh, on the old uh, uh, radio, but it sounds like the Big Ten actually might have football. So uh, I don't want to read too much into, you know, any localized good news, but maybe, maybe now, of course, like Big 12 and stuff isn't playing as well, although Big 12 playing football did not go so well uh, for them playing football, uh, especially here in Iowa. But my point being is, Maybe things are looking up. What do you think? Yeah, I'm actually, Bo, I'm afraid to jinx it by celebrating this morning. But I, I'm pretty happy. And, you know, it's been quite the saga where uh, in August or whatnot, the Big Ten announced their schedule. And then five days later, they said they were shutting everything down. And I think the Big Ten brass thought that everyone would follow suit. But, uh, you know, you... <laughs> You live in the South, and it takes more than a pandemic to shut down football in the South. <laughs> so or I, say, I should say grew up in the South. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think all of us have sort of like mixed feelings. Well, all of us except Clay Travis, mixed feelings about, you know, playing sports during this time. Obviously, the number one concern or priority is the safety of players. But hopefully, I don't know, we saw, we saw football last weekend, and hopefully – that's a good sign that this can be done safely. Yeah, no, I, I you're you're right. Like you know, the in, in a, the time uh, where we're living now, and who knows exactly what's the best way to proceed with everything is. Um, it was like my wife said, who was not even really interested in watching any of the football games uh, per se, but she said just having football makes life seem normal in a way that no offense to well, basketball is so weird because they're playing so late. And then even baseball, because baseball um, with with uh, stuff with the crowds and stuff like that. But she said there's something about it becoming fall and there is football that maybe life someday could return to normal. So whether we're right on this one or not, uh, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, it's certainly, I think, uh, psychologically hard for a lot of us in the United States not to think that this is somewhat some sort of idea of normalcy. You know, we did a uh, fantasy football and like had drafts and got to watch, you know, various players uh, do better or worse. Some people pulled a total Tom Brady, as it were, uh, a new term mm-hmm. I'm hoping we all will use. Uh, so at any rate, uh, you know, maybe maybe a portent for some good things to come. Yeah, I guess we could save this entire discussion for another episode. But I, I do think, um, you know, I was thinking about it in a place like the University of Michigan. They've welcomed thousands of students back to campus. So they've, they've said, you know, we identify the risk, 
but there's a way that we can do this that will minimize that. And there are other goods involved. Now, the question about what goods football provides outside of a diversion, you know, we could debate that. But I think um, hopefully with the players being part of like this regular routine of, of practicing games, that uh, maybe like their social interactions will be minimized in the sense that, you know, if they were just at home uh, kind of bored, they might be out and about. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But um, I'm kind of happy, especially as a Nebraska fan, because when it was first announced that things were being canceled, Scott Frost, our coach, was like, ah, we got to try to give this a go. And the national pundits kind of piled on him. So we're feeling a bit vindicated this morning. That's right. Well, speaking of vindicated, uh, one group that's vindicated in all of this, because without them, it wouldn't even be possible to imagine doing something like this, is healthcare professionals. The people on the ground, in the field, on the front lines, making it possible as we start to open up in different ways to try to make it done, like you said, as safe as possible. And as always, we are underwritten by Mercy College of Health Sciences, who is making the next generation of those people on the front lines, mchs.edu. Yeah, I've been teaching bioethics this fall, and uh, it's great to see Mercy students kind of growing in their knowledge of the ethical issues that they'll be facing as healthcare practitioners. It actually ties in pretty well with our show today, Bo. We've got on today Logan Paul Gage, who's the chair of the philosophy department at Franciscan University in Steubenville. But Logan, he's an acquaintance of mine, and he uh, he's doing uh, he's part of this great new project called New Polity at newpolity.com. And part of what he's been um, teaching there, they've got video courses and articles that folks can read, has to do with the relationship between science and religion. And I think this is a great topic, not only because we're writ- underwritten by Mercy, but also uh, with COVID and uh, other like sort of like serious issues that we've been debating in our culture. You sometimes hear this phrase like, well, our, our side is the, the side of science, et cetera. And I think Logan and our conversation today is going to show how, you know, in part, science alone can't, you know, we, we need a broader picture than that as we have those debates. So um, we'll branch into that and other topics today, but we're happy to have Logan on the show. It's going to be a great episode, so make sure to stick around. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr on the Uncommon Good on this day in which it looks like football returns for the rest of the state of Iowa uh, and maybe... Maybe maybe it, Iowans need to hear that. Uh, I'll leave that up to the interpretation of uh, the events of football last week on that regard. But this is The Uncommon Good, and we will be back right after these messages. <laughs> Folks, if you want to leave messages for The Uncommon Good, easy to do. 515, oh, use the zip whip line. 515-223-1150. 515-223-1150. The zip whip line. You can leave uh, the reminders of scores of other games. Maybe, for instance, Iowa State ones. I don't remember what that score was. But if John Leonetti's still listening, maybe he could use the zip whip line. 515-223-1150. 515-223-1150. I don't want to add new segments to our shows because I'm thinking, oh, you know, this might uh, be a bit too much. But maybe someday we can start, like, you know, uh, putting predictions of, of – uh, of different football games, except it would only get us into trouble. And if we did get into trouble, you could make fun of us on the zip whip line. 515-223-1150. 515-223-1150. UCG for the uncommon good. If you want to leave a message for us, we love hearing from you and incorporating your thoughts and dreams. This is the uncommon good. And we'll be back after this. 
Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Faith on Trial provided by Paul Martin and Paul Mitchell, owners of Imogene Ingredients. Imogene Ingredients supply specialized feed ingredients for livestock and pet diets to improve maternal and young animal health in both conventional and organic production. Information about Pharmatan and other products at ImogeneIngredients.com. Paul and Paul are members of St. Augustine's Knights of Columbus and encourage their brother knights to keep standing for their faith. The Christ Our Life Catholic Conference for Our Searching Souls, Friday and Saturday, September 26th and 27th at Wells Fargo Arena. Speakers include Father Donald Calloway, Sister Miriam James, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, Mirjana Soldo, Magnus McFarlane Barrow, Steve Angrisano, and Iowa Catholic Radio's John Leonetti. Tickets and information are available through ChristOurLifeIowa.com. The Christ Our Life Catholic Conference, September 26th and 27th at Wells Fargo Arena. ChristOurLifeIowa.com. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Storm Alert Weather is provided by Divine Treasures. Divine Treasures is a Catholic book and gift store serving the Des Moines community for over 25 years. Their mission is to help Catholics know, love, and keep their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and His Church. Divine Treasures is where you can find great Catholic books, beautiful Bibles, rosaries, jewelry, statues, and religious gifts for those memorable events in your life. Divine Treasures, 5701 Hickman Road, Des Moines, 515-255-5230. Thank you to Divine Treasures for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Thank you, Dental Associates, for supporting Dowling Catholic Sports 365. Dental Associates, addressing your smile, needs, and dreams. 515-225-6742. Online at Des Moines-DentalAssociates.com. Thanks to Blessman International for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Every year, Blessman International leads teams of Central Iowans to share the compassionate heart of Christ with orphans and vulnerable children in South Africa. You can learn more and sign up for a trip at blessmaninternational.org. Dr. Bud Marr joining you this Wednesday on Iowa Catholic Radio and all our affiliates. And if you're listening to the podcast later, we love having you listen to our show. And we're very thankful for all of our listeners for being a part of all that we do. But if you don't mind introducing our guest for the show today. Yeah, our guest this morning is actually not uh, too far from here where I'm recording in Pittsburgh. He's the um, it's Logan Paul Gage, and he's the chair of the philosophy department at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Dr. Gage, um, he finished his PhD at Baylor University, where he won the university's Outstanding Dissertation Award. His philosophical specialties are in epistemology and the philosophy of religion. If I could do a bit of shameless self-promotion, keep an eye on on an upcoming issue of the Newman Studies Journal, where he has uh, a piece coming out that he co-wrote with Fred Aquino. But while not engaged in philosophy, he can be found cooking, with his wife, wrestling with his five sons, or pulling out his hair while watching the Seattle Sounders. Logan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, bud. Yeah, before we jump into the conversation, I just want to make sure, you know, every time we have a guest on the show, we try to mention the projects that they're involved in. And I want to make sure that I get this one out there for our listeners. Folks, you got to head to newpolity.com and check out what Logan and some of his colleagues are doing there. Logan, could you uh, give our um, our listeners an overview of what inspired New Polity and what you all hope to accomplish? Yeah, sure. So this is a this is a project that I'm I'm a part of, um, directed by Jacob Iman and uh, Imam and um, 
Mark Barnes and and my friend Andrew Jones, uh, our common friend. And um, it, it's a group of people who are, are trying to think more in a more Christian way about, about politics and in a more Catholic way. Um, they are taking seriously um, – they're, they're basically post-liberal people, uh, if that means anything to, to, to you all. But they're, they're post-liberal people who are really thinking through, um, you know, the sort of received synthesis that we've been given in the, in the sort of orthodox Catholic world. Um, they've been thinking, rethinking this in a lot of ways and, and thinking about historically and, and philosophically the, the notions of freedom and justice and so forth that we've been given um, in the last, you know, two, three hundred years. And, and trying to think, what, what does it look like to really be a Catholic in today's uh, sort of political scene? So they have an, a magazine just called New Polity that is really interesting and, and, uh, and worth, worth reading because it helps people think more carefully about, about issues of the day. Well, one thing that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I was excited to see is that a course that you recorded is actually available for a time free on the website. And this course that you taught, it gets into how science became a religion. I think this is a pressing issue for a lot of our listeners, especially maybe younger folks who go off to university and maybe receive the impression that, you know, if you're serious about scientific discovery, that maybe you have to move beyond the religious fairy tales that were given to you as a youth. And I think, Logan, a good way to maybe kick off the topic is to talk about some of the history there. So I was hoping you could... um, you could give a little bit of a sneak preview of one of your lectures where you talk about the Galileo affair. And I feel like this is one of those instances where there's the popular narrative and then a more complex story underneath it. What, um, what happened in the Galileo affair? Is this just an instance of the church being anti-science and slowing down progress? Oh, that's a that's a really great question. This is sort of how I begin this course um, for for New Polity. This course um, on on the philosophy of science, basically, and how to think in a more Christian way about science. Um, I begin uh, so I call. I, I, I begin with talking about the standard narrative here about Galileo. I mean, there's just so many different claims. It's even no, it's hard to know where to start. But something like the standard story is is that church authorities persecuted Galileo largely because they found his ideas threatening. And the church, you know, was was sort of wed to this false cosmology dictated by the Bible and ancient authorities, and and so Galileo, when he was arguing rationally for, um, you know, this new Copernican view of the world with mounds of scientific evidence, he was given the worst possible treatment. I mean, Voltaire even says that he was tortured by the Roman Inquisition and so forth, and. Um, and, but the basic storyline is that, is that the church, you know, in its false ideas and authority were threatened by science. Therefore, they cracked down on Galileo in the harshest possible way. And man, there's so many things to say in reply to that because that's just not, that's just not the truth. Um, I mean, for one thing, it's hard to pin this, uh, pit this as a sort of Christian uh, versus science story when all the parties involved are basically Christians. Um, and, and historians really point out that that the chief rivals of Aristotle were actually these sort of Aristotelian professors of natural philosophy, basically the other scientists. Um, and and uh, and so in this light, you might actually think, and, and there's all this intrigue too. There's all these interesting things about how these Aristotelian natural philosophers were sort of using the church machinery to crack down on Cal- on Galileo behind the scenes, and even feeding the the Pope, um, you know, misinformation and so forth. 
and so you might think of it actually more as a as a tale, not so much about science versus religion, but about how heterodox academics are treated in the academy. You know, you have a threatening idea, and the other the other academics want to want to crack down on you. Um, Another interesting piece of the story here is that this is coming in the wake of the Reformation, and the church didn't want to be seen as too quickly abandoning a straightforward reading of the scriptures. And there are some scriptural passages that that could be taken in a a geocentric way. And so they just wanted to be more careful, and they urged caution on, on Galileo, and they told him, listen, it's one thing to teach that this is a possible theory. It's another thing to teach that uh, the new Copernican, the brand new Copernican view, um, it's another thing to teach that it's, it's literally the truth and it's in, it's my way or the highway. But that was Galileo's real attitude, my way or the highway. And so he got in trouble mainly for going back on his promise not to teach that this was the literal truth. Um, and then one more thing it, it, to add to the story, to add to the mix here is that there was a personality kind of conflict between Pope Urban VIII and Galileo. And, and Pope Urban VIII wanted some of his own ideas on astronomy included in Galileo's most famous work, uh, dialogue concerning two chief world systems. And Galileo did that, but then he put all the arguments of the Pope in the, in the, in the mouthpiece of this, this sort of foolish philosopher named Simplicio, which is, which is what it sounds like, of course. And, um, and so it's a personality conflict. Uh, it, it ties into the Reformation and so forth. So it's just a massively complex question. And the truth is, is that most historians of science think that the empirical evidence at the time was in no way decisively in favor of the new Copernican way of looking at things. Um, And it actually, you know, and it was another 100, 150 years before we had much more decisive evidence really in favor um, of, of the new Copernican view. So it's not as simple as it's made out to be. Uh, Logan, this is Bo. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. And immediately what I think of in that history that people seem to forget. So we actually have um, a blessed uh, blessed Steno, who's sort of like two degrees of Kevin Bacon away from Galileo. Uh, you know, he's this, uh, <laughs> this, this wonderful scientist who makes all of this progress in these in nu- numerous fields, uh, anatomy and, uh, and in geology in real ways that he ends up uh, being revolutionary, actually, like very much expanding the understanding about where fossils come from, which uh, not for religious reasons, but for scientific reasons was a much bigger, more difficult um, uh, scientific problem that people realize. But what's interesting, right, is I, I love throwing wrenches in the gears of easy narratives because where does Steno really get his money to do his work? And it's in the court of the Medicis, uh, who that's another name that people throw out and think automatically they know what's going on. But uh, these Medicis, uh, one of them eventually becomes a churchman. Uh, they, but they're sort of students of Galileo that get Steno, who's the scientist who uh, is Protestant, who converts and then actually becomes a bishop later on, and then it's now a blessed. The reason I like to throw this out uh, for what you're pointing out is we get the idea of like what a Renaissance man is. We hear this word and we think, oh, a Renaissance man is enlightened and, and able to talk about all sorts of subjects. But what they seem to forget when we render the idea of the Renaissance man is this is really because the church at the time cared a lot about the public stance of things like we call science. They call it natural philosophy back then. Uh, But this idea of like what the Renaissance really seemed to be about was this flourishing time period where what we would call science and religion, they wouldn't really even put into those categories because they wouldn't even think that there was the separation 
that we do. And so it's interesting that, you know, with, with what new polity is bringing up and what you're talking about in your course is we live in a world that has fractured and sort of uh, used uh, the, the fine scalpel as it were to break apart a lot of things that when the, the figures that are used in the mythology that you talk about, this sort of like science is a new mythos, um, none of it would have been possible without the church. And it would have been on the last thing on the mind of most of these sort of like first people they talk about uh, to act like that would be the case. But it seems to me that, that is, if that's what that you're trying to address is the sort of public understanding of science um, is rendered in a way that the original heroes they point to would never understand uh, themselves. Yeah, Bo, that's it. That's that's spot on. I mean, the reason I want to talk about Galileo in the first place is not only because it's sort of interesting that there's a false narrative that we were all taught as as school children, but what I want to show is the way that that false narrative is used in our public discourse, the way that it's used to sort of I mean, it, it really was created to sort of beat us down and keep us in our place and to make science an independent source of, a, of authority apart from all other philosophical, theological, and other considerations. And I think that we as Catholics, you know, uh, and, and Christians more broadly shouldn't give into that. Uh, that, that, in fact, a friend of mine once, once put it to me this way. He said that we have a Galileo complex. He said that we, we, and this was before I was even Catholic. He said, he said, you know, Logan, we Catholics have a Galileo complex. And, and I think what he meant by that was that this, these kinds of narratives have created in us a fear that leads to conceding basically not just science, you know, uh, not just a strict separation between science and theology and philosophy, but really conceding all of public reality to secularism. And then religion becomes internal, spiritual, privatized. Uh, and this, you know, this has been going on since, since the Reformation, this inward turning of religion. And, and this, these false narratives about the, the supposed warfare or conflict between constant conflict between science and Christianity and especially Catholicism, those narratives are not just false, but they're used in a way that gets us to concede more and more ground to, to secularism and, and less and less space for, um, for, for the truth of the faith, I think. Yeah, I, th- <clears throat> I think we've, uh, we've, we've given a good you know, sense of the history and why uh, or how it's been kind of told in simplistic ways, sort of jumping ahead in time to where we're at today, you still find prominent, you know, writers trying to pit science against religion or religion against science, frankly, in the other direction. And one that comes to mind for me, Logan, is someone like uh, Sam Harris. A few years back, he had this book, uh, The Moral Landscape, How Science Can Determine Human Values. And if you read the book, part of his argument is that we don't need religion to tell us how to live like science on its own can provide us with all of the pressing questions that we ask as human individuals and human communities. And um, I picked up on a, on a phrase in one of your lectures, which I think uh, really offers some helpful pushback to Sam Harris. And what I have in mind is this notion that you sometimes hear not, not so much scientists, but you know, like new atheists like Harris and Dawkins kind of give the impression that, well, we believe in science. It gives us like certain knowledge and it's open to pushback and therefore it's different than religion. Um, and, and, and they sort of give the impression that, well, science doesn't need a metaphysics like theology does. And therefore, 
you know, it's sort of free of the kind of conflicts that we've seen in the history of religious conversations or theological conversations. What would you start to say to uh, someone like Harris who frames the argument in those terms? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I, I would say, first of all, that even defining science, it turns out, if you get into the philosophy of science literature, even trying to figure out exactly what science is supposed to be is really, really hard. Um, we were all taught usually in fifth grade that there's this scientific method where you, you know, you frame a hypothesis and then you do some empirical, you know, experimentation. And then you go back to analyze the data and see whether or not your hypothesis is true. And if not, then you frame a new hypothesis and so forth. And, um, I mean, but if you think about that, it's like, so you're saying that, uh, we all have ideas and we should kind of, look at the evidence and see if they're true. And if they're not, we should revise our ideas. I mean, that's, there's nothing really peculiar to science there, but we have this notion of a special method and a sort of special virtues of the scientists of dispassionate inquiry and so forth that, um, that make it so different from every other idea. And so I just, I would never concede to, to Harris and these guys that, that scientific activity is so different than the rest of everything else. I mean, when you're, when you're doing theology, what are you doing? Well, you're very often trying to come up with the best explanation for certain teachings or, or scriptural passages or different kinds of things. And you're, you know, you're trying to make sense of all your evidence. And we do this in science. We do this in religion. We do this in everyday life. And so I think that setting up science in the first place on this pedestal, like it's the superhuman activity that no one else ever performs, um, is, is really a, a, a mistake. And so, um, on the other hand, you could end up with such a, you, if you still want a definition of science, you end up with something so general that, that either we all do or else it's so specific that only a handful of scientists really do that. And so, so I guess I would first say I wouldn't concede the, their very notion of science. But then secondly, and, and I guess in this, in this lecture series for New Polity uh, on science and, and Christianity and philosophy and theology, what I'm trying to do really is show that there's two basic responses, I think, among Catholic intellectuals today. I mean, among good Catholic intellectuals, there are two basic responses to the Sam Harris New Atheist types. One is to, is to say, well, we kind of concede that science is so different from everything else, and we'll give you science, and we're going to retreat into theology. And there's a strict wall of separation between them. And you're not allowed to say anything about our stuff. And, you know, in fairness, we'll not say anything about your stuff. But I'm afraid that that, that reply sounds like it makes sense at first, because in general, you might think science and, and, and the faith are different things. Uh, but what that response ends up doing is, is, again, creating this strict wall of separation that that really makes the faith privatized and has nothing to really say to public reality. But I think that if God really exists we might find different things in nature than if it's all a, a, a gigantic sort of accident. And so I just, I'm, wor- I'm wary about conceding that. I think, um, so, so, so I think that we just shouldn't concede their very definition of science and nor should we just kind of retreat into a privatized religion that has nothing to say about public reality. I think instead we have to engage in the hard work of trying to, to wade through science a little bit more and say, what part of this is really science? What part of this is, so what part's hard data? And what part is sort of theorizing that you're just claiming is science? And we got to do that hard work. And I know it's easier to just retreat um, and, and sort of put up a moat and say, well, we're going to retreat into theology. But I'm, I think that's a really unwise policy. Yeah, th- this reminds me, uh, I, I, you know, the problem with a radio show is you have hobby horses that you continually bring up. So one of mine is, uh, you know, 
I think it was Nietzsche that pointed out that philosophy, when Socrates was doing it, was actually young. Like, we're the old men of philosophy, he says. Mm. We have the worn-out language. And if there's one thing that I think we see in in terms of politics and, and, and philosophy and theology, science, all of it, is a great uh, stripping of the nuts. Like, you know, if you ever have nuts and bolts and, like, someone has, like, used, like, a power tool too much where they – they take it where you can't even use like a screw and a screwdriver anymore because it's worn out. And we've done that. We have so many words that have been stripped that it's hard to have discussions. Um, we, we, we've talked about this with words like socialism and capitalism of, of, of democracy. Like there's these basic words that we all use that have such mission creep that it's really hard to actually pin down and talk about what we want to. And that when you do try to pin them down, you sound like such a technical nerd. It's hard for the public to take serious what you're trying to say. You, I think, rightly point out that science is, is getting into this realm. Very easy to point out, right? Like, is science something everything everyone does or something that only very few people do? But I think we have to drill down more and talk about words like evidence. Right. Uh, if, if there's something that, like, we've, that has been shown to us during the COVID crisis is what on earth people mean by evidence <laughs> is not clear and what does it mean to make decisions based on evidence and I, you know people all sorts of people will hear me say that and think that i'm jumping to conclusions about like public policy and masks and all these things mm. but before you even get to that the what i have just noticed as someone who i guess is, dorks out about these things is the word evidence at some time are is so incommensurably used between different people that it's not even clear that they're referring to the same thing. And like you said, the only cure for that, unless we invent a new language is to do extremely hard work and not so much about like truth and like, cause truth is propositional. We have to get to the point of clarifying things and that's a difficulty. Now to be clear, I talk too much. So we're going to the break. I'm sorry. I led all that up Logan. And then I took the time when we get back. I know you have some great stuff to say about that. So we'll do that when we get back from the break. This is the uncommon good. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. Folks, if you want to be a part of Iowa Catholic Radio, it's easy to do. You can just use the various social media and Internet ways to keep in contact with what we're up to. You can go to the website, iowacatholicradio.com, where you can listen live wherever there's a data connection. You can sign up for email updates. You can donate to the show. You can even look at people's faces if you so choose. But that's just a warning that, you know, you got to choose that one. That's on you. Uh, if you want to, you can go to Facebook, look up Iowa Catholic Radio and friend us. And then through the magic of Zuckerberg's machine, we will be friends and you can see our posts. You can go to Twitter and follow at IA Catholic Radio, follow our tweets. And then finally, you can download the Iowa Catholic Radio app. And wherever there's data, you can listen live, donate, do such things as that. This is the Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marn will be back right after this. The Christ Our Life Catholic Conference for Our Searching Souls, Friday and Saturday, September 26th and 27th at Wells Fargo Arena. Speakers include Father Donald Calloway, Sister Miriam James, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, Mirjana Soldo, Magnus McFarlane Barrow, Steve Angrisano, and Iowa Catholic Radio's John Leonetti. Tickets and information are available through ChristOurLifeIowa.com. The Christ Our Life Catholic Conference, September 26th, 26 and 27 at Wells Fargo Arena, ChristOurLifeIowa.com. 
Thanks to Blessman International for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Every year, Blessman International leads teams of Central Iowans to share the compassionate heart of Christ with orphans and vulnerable children in South Africa. You can learn more and sign up for a trip at blessmaninternational.org. Partial support for Catholic Women Now comes from injury attorney Fred Haas. When Iowans have been injured through no fault of their own, in a car, truck, or motorcycle accident, harmed in a work-related injury, or suffered injury due to negligence of others, Fred Haas has been on their side to help recover from financial, physical, and emotional loss. Fred, double D, Haas, double A. Online at fredhaas.com. The Des Moines Law Offices of Fred Haas. While we have time, let us do good. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Be Not Afraid is provided by Dream Dirt Farm Real Estate and Auction. Learn more at DreamDirt.com, including their online auction house, FarmBid, at bid.dreamdirt.com. Dream Dirt Farm and Equipment Auction Services, farm auctions done right. Here's your forecast on Iowa Catholic Radio. It looks fair for the next couple of days. A little cooler tomorrow. We'll be in the low 80s for the afternoon, breezy and mostly sunny. Overnight looks clear, down to about 50, 70 and sunny tomorrow. The weather is brought to you by Rock Valley Physical Therapy. Outstanding outpatient physical therapy and sports medicine rehabilitation with seven convenient locations in the Des Moines metro and southwest Iowa area. I'm meteorologist Steve Hamilton on Iowa Catholic Radio. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner and Dr. Budmar coming to you this Wednesday from Iowa Catholic Radio. Thank you very much for listening on the show. Our guest today uh, is Dr. Logan Paul Gage, Chair of the Philosophy Department of Graduate Studies Status Faculty, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville. You can also catch his work over at newpolity.com. Logan, thank you for coming back on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me. First of all, Logan, I've noticed that like uh, between your graduate work and, and where you work now, you really like green and gold places. Is there anything <laughs> to that? Yeah, that's right. Those have like been my only my only colors. And, uh, right. Yeah, that's right. Baylor and Franciscan. Yeah. That's so, right. Um, but before the break, I so rudely started like getting up on a soapbox that I always do. So I'm sorry for taking you, us to the break. But I think this is in your wheelhouse, right? The stripping yes. of language um, and precisely not only science, but evidence. That's um, right. And in a public way, you know, like people might ask, why, what does this have to do with the common good? But if we, we as a public don't really talk on the same wavelength about what counts for evidence, seemingly public discourse would be lost. Is this driving some of your concerns? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, my dissertation was on on the notion of evidence in, in epistemology, right, uh, on how we, you know, what is what is evidence for beliefs? And, and one thing that that study taught me was that, um, you know, part of what's going on in our sort of science religion uh, debate that we have in our in our country and in the Western world Part of what's going on is people just think in a really easy manner. They think, well, there just can't be any evidence for God's existence because evidence is sort of all empirical stuff. And and it turns out that that's a really bad view of evidence. If that were our only notion of evidence, we'd know little to little to nothing. Um, but especially, I think what you were calling attention to also was this notion of evidence in these public debates we're having right now about COVID and so forth. And I think what we've all learned, at least I hope, is that at the very least, when someone says science says 
uh, it, it calls for a little more circumspection, right? I mean, I'm no, I'm no skeptic of every scientific claim. I don't think we want to become cranks and skeptics. But I do think we need to be a little more wise and, and we need to at least, we don't need to gain all the technical expertise of every scientific field. That's impossible. But we could start to differentiate between, say, hard, you know, observable data versus, say, computer models, which are always going to have a lot of, they call for a lot more circumspection because they always have a lot of assumptions built into them and so forth. Um, and, and that's something we're not very good at. People say science says and we start to shut down. And again, that's because of these false narratives about the history of conflict between science and religion. Not only Galileo, but Columbus and the flat earth myth and, you know, the scopes legend and all these sorts of things are used to kind of keep us from ever questioning or making, at the very least, keep us from making careful distinctions uh, about scientific evidence and what's really hard data and observable, what is more on the other end of the spectrum of speculation, conjecture, or computer models that have, you know, very controversial assumptions built into them like we saw uh, just recently in, you know, with COVID. Yeah, uh, Logan, uh, last week was actually the 14th anniversary of uh, Pope Benedict's Regensburg Address. Mm. And when he first gave that talk, I remember that there was an amazing amount of blowback to the address. There was one line in, in the presentation that folks perceived as, you know, hostile to the religion of Islam. But if you if you dig deep into the address, I think Pope Benedict was saying something really significant about what we've been talking about this morning. And the part of the talk that's always stood out to me was when he talks about, you know, science has become such an authoritative voice in our society because it, um, it sort of narrows the focus. Like it brackets out um, the questions of like what Aristotle would call teleology, like yeah. final causation. And it just looks at like material and efficient causation. And he says that gives it both great explanatory power, but it can also be harnessed to, you know, <laughs> power important inventions and things like this. But Benedict warned, and I think it was an important time in history to, to, do, to do so. He said, you know, we're all concerned right now about religious fundamentalism or fideism that would say, like, um, we just believe what we do because, uh, you know, it's, it's given to us and we don't, like, sort of question it. But he also pointed out that on the flip side, that religion, not religion, science can have pathologies of its own. And what he had in mind was, you know, the setting aside of really important questions about human life. Um, I've been kind of long-winded in the lead up to my, to my question to you, but could you uh, talk some about the notion of scientism and how there's actually a way where, you know, it's presented as the most rational way of approaching the world, but it's actually quite reductive when it comes to important questions that human beings just absolutely have to pose and answer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so scientism is typically the notion that science is either the only, and it's so the strong form of scientism would be that science is the only real way to truth or knowledge. And, but you, it might even come in a more moderate version. It's something like the best way that humans have to know reality. Um, and, and I think it's obviously questionable in either form. Uh, there are just a great many things that we know that we don't know through any sort of scientific means. In fact, I think the things that we're most secure in our knowledge about things like fundamental moral truths that it's wrong to, to torture innocent people for, you know, for no good reason. Um, those kinds of moral truths that we all know, we didn't learn those from experiments or, you know, messing with test tubes or anything like that. Um, but, but increasingly, you know, this, the, we, 
out of the 19th century, you know, and out of the Enlightenment arises this positivist narrative, this this notion that science is continually replacing religion, and and that basically religion is treating retreating into smaller and smaller spaces because you know really science is the best way to to know reality. Now, at first in the scientific revolution, this started very innocently, as 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 you were alluding to from from Pope Benedict. Um, originally in the scientific revolution, the the initial theorists of science like Descartes and Bacon, they just sort of said, well, let's set aside those other concerns about the purpose of things, about whether there's any real design, about whether there's a sort of um, um, purpose and certainly whether there's any sort of forms um, or sort of essence, what it is to be this kind of creature. They said, let's just set that aside and let's focus on where we can make progress. What's really important to them was sort of extension, sort of bodies taking up space, like three dimensions and, and motion, these things that we can measure really easily. They're more tractable. And initially those guys said, listen, that's just more tractable. We're not saying that there's no purpose on display in nature. We're just saying science shouldn't really focus on it. But gradually that becomes the idea that those, since we don't need those things in science and science is making such great progress, well, then maybe there is no purpose that's evident to us in nature. We just forget about it or we think that it, it's, only, it's only through some private uh, experience that you might, you know, see purpose in nature. But that's just, that's just false. You look around nature and there's purpose on display everywhere. Everything has a purpose and a function. It's not a bunch of chaotic random junk, you know, thrown together like we might expect if there's no uh, providential being over it all. And so, and so I think that positivist narrative, you know, leads to this kind of scientism. The idea that science is always replacing religion and, um, leads to this kind of scientism, that science must be the only or best way of knowing. But I think we've got to push back against that hard. And, and part of the job, though, is to start, I think, for us to think in a, more, in a broader way about science. So, so science might include the search for whether there's purpose that's evident in nature. Um, and we might develop a broader and mo- more coherent worldview rather than, as, as you guys were saying earlier, a sort of strict separation uh, in our minds between science on the one hand and, and the faith on the other. Um, Logan, this is great stuff. And so it makes me, I'm going to throw out a theory. This is the sort of stuff you get kicked off the air for. So you're here <laughs> like on the front line for it. So um, we live in a world that consists talks about data-driven decisions and evidence-based blank medicine right. curriculum, whatever it is, evidence data, evidence data. And there's a way in which if you go like w- with what you're doing, right, qu- questioning these sort of fundamental myths about like what science is, science and religion, it can sound like you're saying like right-wing crankism. That's, what, mm-hmm. th- that's the, the, the counter-narrative that tries to get thrown out. What's funny to me, though, is that like when I hear this, what I have in mind probably gets construed the other way, which is what I'm saying. I I think this science narrative is so important because people don't want us to drill down with what they're doing with data and evidence. Hmm. So look, for instance, at Google, Google, who has invented an entire uh, new field of capitalism, essentially, in order to make money off of using your data and then marketing your data as something that says something about you that can then be used to turn a profit. Google, Google has literally made money on data mining your behavior of searches. This also plays out when like things in real life start to sound like 90s and early 2000s sci-fi movies where there was literally a police department that was 
using data that they collected to basically try to do the minority report where they were predicting they thought who would commit crimes. And then like, lo and behold, for those people, they wrote up citation a rate of like five to one or something like this. What I'm getting at is when you start asking, why are these, why is this myth so important to people? Like why, why do they care about this particular Galileo? Why are they fighting fights that like Vico and Augustus Comte brought up? And you start to realize that there is a ton of money in social engineering behind using science as a deflection to not talk about data evidence and how they think it should be used. So I just throw that, that, that like heaping fire uh, soapbox yeah. on you. Do you think that that <laughs> starts to play out, right? Yeah, I guess, I guess what I wonder when I hear you say that is – is is it that cons- is it that coordinated, or are we actually dealing with the fact that our elites are not really that broadly educated? Like they were brought up in a in a, you know, they, so all those guys in Silicon Valley that went to Stanford. I mean, they haven't been trained in theology, philosophy, ethics. The only thing they know is sort of science and technology and math. And and so I was watching a, a documentary the other day on Silicon Valley, and and you know the documentary writers were just asking the most basic ethical questions to these leaders in Silicon Valley. And those people think it's like, they don't even know what we're talking about, you know? Um, so, so, you know, Google or, or whomever, or whichever company, you know, they, this is part of the scientism that we were just talking about is that people think the only real tangible thing is science. And so if you're raising ethical considerations about not just what we could, so you're not just saying what we could do scientifically or technologically, you're raising questions about what we should do, what we ought to do in light of human concerns. Um, they just think you're not talking about real stuff. You know, I, I don't even think it occurs to them uh, that, that there could be very many ethical problems with these things until people from the outside raise them. And but I do think that when we talk in this way, people people think, well, you're being cranks, you're being skeptics. But I don't you know, certainly my goal is not to be a crank or a skeptic, but to be more realistic about science, that it's a very human enterprise. It's driven by particular people and groups and their concerns and sometimes their blind spots and and that we just need to be more careful with it. But then this these myths, these are these again, these historical myths of the conflict between science and religion and this constant warfare, which, by the way, these myths were largely invented in the late 19th century. These myths keep us from 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 asking those questions, as you were saying, or keep us from, it looks like we are just like, we just might have religious concerns about Google or something. <laughs> it's like, well, like, right. you know, in other words, we're bringing private concerns when that's not it. We have real legitimate concerns about human goods that are at stake here with such technology. And when you raise that, people use these myths to say, you're just a crank. You're just religious. You're just a skeptic, etc." And I think we got to push back against that and say, we're not skeptics. We're just trying to develop a more comprehensive worldview. Yeah, and Logan, to put um, more flesh on on kind of this skeletal structure we've been setting up, um, I, I think I'm going to punt on COVID because it's a little too close to us right now. Yeah. But you think of an issue like climate change. And, uh, you know, it's that last week it was interesting because former President Obama, he said something to the effect like, vote like the climate depends on it. And right. when you ask, well, why is that the case? You know, sometimes I have friends who say like, well, one party believes in science and the other does not. And of course, on the radio show, we want to avoid completely like any sort of like question about partisan politics. But thinking about 
an issue like climate change, where if some of the models are correct, it is a serious matter. And even the Holy Father has drawn our attention to the proper care for the earth. Could you uh, give us some starting points for how Catholics can think about this question well without falling into some of the traps that we talked about? Like, it's not simply a matter of believing the science. There's all sorts of questions about the goods we hold in common and how we should order our society to attain those goods. And so I, I know it's we've got about five minutes and that's a lot to chew on, but like maybe some starting points for how Catholics can contribute well to the public discourse without falling into either fundamentalism or scientism. Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, it's so funny that you picked that topic too, because I'm always telling my students, you don't have to have a position on everything. And that part of wisdom is not having a firm position on absolutely, on absolutely everything. And I don't, I really don't have one on climate change, but I can speak to the question of, of, of how do we think more carefully about this? I mean, you draw, you already drew attention to some of these, these features, but when it comes to the current, you know, climate science de- debate, as you said, we're, so we have some hard data, but then we also have computer models with various assumptions. Um, and, and so we have various level, layers of questions here. First of all, you know, is the climate warming? How much is it warming? How much is it likely to warm? How bad is that? And what trade-offs are involved? Um, and so I don't think that everyone who questions, for instance, you know, the current climate science, I don't think that they're automatically a crank because part of what they're questioning are the assumptions behind various computer models. And then as you alluded, another thing that people c- can question legitimately, even if they say, no, the dominant view of, of, of most scientists, the scientific consensus is perfectly correct. They, th- there's a different level of policy question. And so I'm afraid that, again, we're so scientistic, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, this view of scientism, we're so scientistic that we just think, well, whatever the current consensus is automatically somehow determines policy. And, and that's not true because, again, science looks at a very narrow range of, of features of our, our world, our environment, and the physical world. It doesn't automatically tell us what's most important and what the trade-offs economically would be in terms of human goods. So, so many people obviously have argued that if, we, if a lot of you know, the proposed climate legislation was enacted, that you know, people in Africa would suffer terribly because they're currently you know, using forms of energy that uh, would no longer be deemed acceptable and they wouldn't be allowed to develop, you know, in certain ways. And, and so, and so again, just to bring us back to the point, the point I think is not that we need to be science skeptics or even climate skeptics or whatever. Um, though I, I do think there are some legitimate areas to ask questions about, but the point is that there are broader human concerns about how we should live and how we should live together. And, 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 and we're, and like you said, we're seeing the same sort of thing with, with COVID, which, which we don't need to get into too much, but there is a different question between, um, you know, how bad or how deadly is this virus versus how bad would all the other policies be to, to sort of totally crush the virus? I suppose we could all stay home endlessly for 10 years, you know, but that obviously calls for a certain kind of trade-off. And so that's why we need philosophy, ethics. We have to bring in those kinds of concerns. Otherwise, we're stuck in a very narrow uh, scientific discussion. Well, Logan, it, it, this has been a fantastic discussion. We only have about two minutes to, to throw out like something that's not even a question, but just uh, to get your confirmation because of the field you're in. It seems to me the big, thick, just web that is hard to talk about is uh, modeling itself. So like mm-hmm. the, the, the technicality of scientific modeling is so difficult to in any way 
talk about in a public manner about like what is good or bad modeling. And again, I like, we really can't talk, but like, do you, do you start to see this? Is this something that we're butting up against in all of these discussions is uh, the, 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 the wizard behind the curtain when it comes to modeling? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and and as we found out, you know, I think everyone would say now that that some of the COVID models were were very far off. And so not only do they have assumptions, um, but but I guess I guess what I would say this is that we don't need to challenge the scientific consumption, the scientific uh, consensus on uh, on every issue at all times. That would turn us into cranks. But I think what we can do is be more sensitive to various worldview issues in particular, you know, um, obviously sort of humanity and where we come from and evolutionary theories, those might call for a certain kind of sensitivity that other kinds of theories where you can't see anything uh, too big at stake, you know, that those might be areas where the latter might be areas where you don't want to question the scientific consensus or, or even begin to. So, so it's computer modeling, sure, but also like worldview issues in general call for a kind of sensitivity that other scientific issues might not. Well, uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, and, and we've ran out of time, so we want to thank you. So Dr. Logan Paul Gage, chair of the, the philosophy department out at Franciscan University of Steubenville. You can check out his work on the subject that we've been talking about all this time on the show over at newpolity.com. Logan, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Folks, this is the uncommon good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts in our family, in our city, in our state, nation, world, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. But if people want to keep up with our prayer life here on Iowa Catholic Radio, please tell the good people ways that they can do so. Yeah, we certainly covet your support. If you'd like to help um, you know, further the ministry of Iowa Catholic Radio, one simple but very effective way to do so is to join us in prayer daily. We pray the rosary on air at 5.30 a.m., 9.30 a.m., and 9.30 p.m. We also pray the Angelus together at 6 in the morning, but all of those prayer opportunities are available 24-7, 365 on the Iowa Catholic Radio app. And then, folks, uh, we just want to say, first of all, thank you for being a part of the ministry of Iowa Catholic Radio. The ministry of Iowa Catholic Radio is not just the people speaking on air, not the good people behind the boards back at the station and in the offices. It is the culmination of everyone who listens, speaks, is part of the station, supports, volunteers, has good thoughts, spreads the word, prays for us. This is a mission that we're all on together, this mission of letting people know about the truth of Jesus Christ and his church and the the, uh, the the goal of getting as many souls to heaven as possible. This is all our common work, and we want to thank you for being a part of it. Um, part of the way you do that, as Bud said, is through prayer that we covet very much, volunteering as well, but also through donations uh, in this time of COVID and everything else. Uh, it, it's absolutely the case that nonprofits are struggling a bit. We have been very uh, blessed with how we have been hanging on, but we still very much need your support to keep doing what we're doing. You can donate by going on iowacatholicradio.com and clicking the donate button. It's possible to donate also by using the Iowa Catholic Radio app, or you can call 515-223-1150, and there will be people very happy to talk to you at the office about helping us keep up this ministry here on Iowa Catholic Radio through your donations. We want to thank you. Thank you for listening to the show either live on the recast on broadcast, uh, excuse me, um, or through podcast. 
And we want to thank you for supporting the show. So, Bud, uh, you know, with, with the last minute that we have here, uh, I, we talked about football coming back and everything like that. But I think it's a matter of enjoying the last sort of um, uh, few weeks of like nice, warm sunshine on everyone. So hope you guys get to go out there and enjoy uh, your neck of the woods. Yeah, our our local community kept the swimming pool open for a little extra time because of what went down this summer. But tonight's the last night, so it's going to feel like a true swan song. And I hope when I wake up tomorrow morning that I can wear my tweed sweater unabashedly and sip <laughs> my pumpkin spice latte like John Leonetti would want me to. That's right. Like, yeah, uh, pour out a little pumpkin spice for John. This is The Uncommon Good, folks. God bless, and we will talk to you next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.